Ben Haritz told me something that stuck with me for a while. He said, Tristan, what will make you successful is if you focus on the thing that you fundamentally feel that you're the best person in the world to solve, like the problem that you're trying to solve. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. It's great to see everyone today. So instead of doing a lengthy introduction of who Tristan is, we're going to let the questions kind of speak for themselves. What I will say is I've been lucky enough to know Tristan for just about a decade now. We met actually through the power of social media. So when Tristan was going to school at Stanford University, a story he'll talk about, He had a side hustle, which was actually a full-time job running business development for one of the hottest startups in the country called Foursquare. And I was fortunate at the time to be one of the uh, core members of the corporate digital strategy team at P&G. And we were interacting not through telephone, not through email, or not through even in-person meetings, but actually through the power of Twitter connecting people together. So it's fun to be here today to see the journey that he's on to bring you along with that journey, to kind of talk about the conversation, and to uh, share some of those lessons along the way. So with that, Tristan, come join me, and we'll get these mics up and going. I feel old. You feel old? What am I? You got to answer that for yourself. Awesome. And to set the stage, we'll be talking here for probably about 45, 50 minutes, and then we are going to be finishing with Q&A. But if at some point Tristan says something that you just got to ask him about it, shoot your hand up. This is meant to be kind of a fun conversation, not just the two of us up here droning on along the way. So let's kind of have fun with it, kind of across the board. So Tristan, welcome. Thanks. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with the title of this talk, uh, which is Bring the Hustle. So That's one of those words in the world of startup culture, it gets thrown out a lot, but sometimes it doesn't exactly have meaning behind it. Mm -hmm. What does hustle mean to you? Yeah, I mean, for me, can everybody hear me? Is it okay? For me, it's just wanting it. I thought about this a lot. So, you know, my upbringing was pretty humble. I grew up in Queens, New York, projects, welfare, homelessness, like stuff like that. And I realized super early that I just wanted it more, right? Now, when I got to Stanford, I realized, like, what was the thing that actually got me the things that I wanted versus other students that did not? And I realized it's because I'm willing to ask why, like, six times and other people are only really nasty at five, right? At some point, kind of folks give up, right? Folks can't really see through, can't see and look into the future, right, and be willing to risk it all. But for me, I always thought, well, God, my worst case scenario is going back to the way that I grew up, right? And I survived that. (laughs) And I think some folks are unwilling to come to that realization for themselves. So my coming to that realization where I knew that the base was something that I was able to succeed in allowed me to really kind of sharpen the pencil a little bit around what grind meant, uh, what hustle meant, and what out-competing people. So let's go back to that, uh, those humble beginnings you should talk about. Because one of the things that's really, I think, special about NKU students is a lot of first-generation coming to a university, coming to that environment. And you didn't just go to Stanford. You had a chance to okay, go to Hotchkiss yeah. as you're kind of an awakening to what a different world was like a little bit. Yeah. Uh, talk about how that experience shaped the path that has You've now been on for two decades. Yeah, so when I, um, you know, gr- growing up where I did, you know, the story goes, I only had one goal in life, and that was to get as wealthy as possible, as quickly as possible. 
you know, I said, God, I don't want to kind of live in this way. My family does not deserve to live in this way. There has to be a better way. I had the good fortune when I was 14 years old to get a full ride at uh, one of the top boarding prep schools in the country called the Hotchkiss School. Um, it was in Lakeville, Connecticut. Um, there were forests and trees. I was like, what is this place? Um, it's like behind us. Yeah, exactly. And I like to say it was the first time I got to see how the other half lived. You know, I went to school with folks that had prominent last names, right? Rockefeller, right? Ford. And I really got to understand the importance of, of name, right? Um, and you know, what it meant to be wealthy, right? And generationally wealthy. But much like my kind of point around the Stanford point around kind of out competing folks, you know, I realized that I deserved to be there, right? Yes, I was on full ride, but they accepted me into that school, and it was my duty to prove that I deserved to be there. And, you know, fast forward four years later, like I'm graduating near the top of my class, right? Um, <laughs> when I started at the Hatcha School, I didn't know what a verb was by the end of it, like graduating towards the top of my class. And again, that sharpened the pencil for me a little bit um, in understanding, again, what hustle and grind meant in the context of my being around these folks with name, a name that I didn't have but desired to. So I want to continue on that path of education because it has been such a defining part of shaping who you are today. You then went off to Stanford, as you mentioned, but instead of doing what just your classmates were doing, you were hustling and grinding mm -hmm. and you were going above and beyond and you had a chance to join Foursquare mm -hmm. as their first business development lead. How'd that end up happening? So even b before the Foursquare and Stanford stuff, you know, it's important to realize in the context of my story, you know, I mentioned a little bit, like, I just want to get rich, wealthy, right? Uh, I realized that there were three ways to do it. The first was to be an actor and an athlete. That did not work out for me too well, still has not. Um, the second way uh, was to work on Wall Street. I had the good fortune to work on Wall Street for two years. I hated it. It was the worst job of my life. I was an oil trader for two years. I was a victim of incredibly bad culture with type A personalities that did not vibe with me. I realized at the time that my job was to make money with other people's money to, at the end of the year, make money for myself, and there was no fulfillment in that for me. So I was like, damn, I've exhausted two of these three opportunities. The last one is entrepreneurship. If I don't get this right, then I really got to figure out something up with my life. At the time, I said I wanted to get as far away from Wall Street as possible, literally, you know, you had the Atlantic Ocean, there's a school out west by the Pacific Ocean called Stanford, pretty well known for entrepreneurship, let me apply and get in. And it wasn't until I got there that I realized, and I was 24, um, that I realized that there are the 24-year-olds making millions and millions, in some cases billions of dollars, and fundamentally changing the world. Much like that Hotchkiss experience, I said, I can do this too, right? Like, I deserve to be here, I got in. So that first year in business school, I worked at Twitter. Uh, when there were about 20 people at the company and really got a sense for what Silicon Valley meant and where kind of Silicon Valley was trending in that kind of wealth creation. And then in between my first and second year of business school, that's when I joined this company at the time called Foursquare. I actually had an internship for the Boston Consulting Group. They paid a little bit of money for my schooling, right? It was like $10,000, $15,000, something like that. And as a return for that, I had to do my internship with the Boston Consulting Group. So my negotiation with them was, I'm only going to do this for half the summer. I had this wonderful opportunity at Twitter that I can come back to. I'm really going to figure that out. About a week or two into my Boston Consulting Group in internship, you know, I'd been using this app called Foursquare. For those who aren't familiar with it, it helps you kind of explore your cities. You can check in at places, get tips on those places, what to do, that sort of thing. There was 10,000 users at the time. 
And you know, I realized as I was using it, oh, this is a like, great app for me. It's fundamentally changing my life. I want to be a part of this because I can see kind of where the future of it is going. I found the founder's emails on the internet somewhere. Right? I was like, I want to kind of learn about this. I want to participate in it. There's something special getting created. The classic story goes, I emailed them eight times. The eighth time, and this was the last time that I was going to email, the founder of the company, his name was Dennis Crowley. He replied back to me and said verbatim in the email, he said, you know what, um, comma, I just may take you up on some of this, comma, are you ever in New York? That's where they were based, um, Dennis. And I was in LA at the time with my wife, and I looked at her, and I was like, wow, like this jerk has not emailed me for eight emails. He finally got back to me, what should I do? Um, and five minutes later, I'll never forget this moment, we were watching Lost, uh, the TV show. Put it on pause, I sent him an email back. And I said, actually, you know what? I was planning on being in New York tomorrow. I booked my flight that night, flew out the following morning, hung out with him for a week, and a month later, I was running business development for the company. Now, this was all while I was still at the Boston Consulting Group. So I had to figure out some way to make that happen, tell the Boston Consulting Group that I had to be off for a week, uh, speak to Foursquare about this opportunity, and negotiate it for myself. I ended that internship halfway through, like I promised, with Boston Consulting Group. Started with Foursquare, and that changed my life. So you're related to that. Yeah. NKU is a school where a lot of students are doing exactly what you're doing. You go into school full-time, working full-time, trying to balance those two. What do you think you learned from you know, trying to do that balance while all your classmates were just focused on doing their interviews, doing their schoolwork? How did that change your work ethic and your yeah. hustle and your grind by having that experience? Yeah, no, I think uh, that's a great question. It, it didn't necessarily change my work ethic or grind. It just gave me perspective. You know, one thing I tell a lot of folks um, who are either going to business school or kind of any school for that matter, in these types of organizations, there are only three things you could focus on, right? It's academic, social, and professional. And I fundamentally believe you can only do two of those things well, right? And when I looked at a lot of my other classmates, they tried to do all three, and they were unable to do it successfully. Now, it's no problem if you want to do the social and academic well. It's no problem if you want to do social professional. It's no problem if you want to do professional academic. You choose, right? You go in and those things, but you also know that that third one is traded off a little bit. So for me, it was academic professional. My social suffered. I'm like, I had the Hotchkiss experience. The Stanford thing is Hotchkiss all over again, just with older people. You're going to go through this thing. You're going to end out of it with like five friends. <laughs> you're going to be with uh, kind of the rest of your life, not the 600 or so that like go to school with you. Like I've seen this movie before in HD. So I think focusing for me on academic professional really provided me space to be able to work full time while I was going through my business school education, which was very tough. But had I focused more on the social thing, it would have been impossible. So it's easy to look back now and say, okay, that time period, entrepreneurship was this path to wealth creation. But let's rewind and remember, that was 2008, 2009, 2010. Mm -hmm. There was this thing called a recession that was going on. Yeah. That was more of the risky path mm -hmm. versus a lot of your peers in Stanford were going to go take the big tech job at Google, make several hundred thousand dollars a year, go take the BCG job, mm -hmm. go take the CPG job. You took that path that you were not getting wealth in that first salary that was coming from Foursquare. Mm -hmm. uh, we know how much Dennis had raised that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> if that goal was going after that, 
what led you to be willing to take a bet on that path instead of maybe the safer bet uh, that you were afforded? Yeah, so I think there are two things to think about. I think first, when people think about startups, they think you don't get paid. No, I got paid. <laughs> you know, I think it's important to um, you know, ask for what you believe you're worth and you know, don't fall victim to the stereotypes of not getting paid. Startups raise money. They should pay their people. Those people should be paid fairly. That's something that like, is very important for you guys to realize. If you want to work for a startup that's unwilling to pay you, question why you want to work for that startup. Very important. For me, I realized, look, I was a Hotchkiss graduate, survived that. I uh, worked on Wall Street, survived that. I'm a Stanford MBA graduate, right? Like My, my worst case scenario is better than 99% of the world's best case scenario. There's some perspective that I think we all need to have here. You guys are sitting in this room right now, right? Like a large percentage of people on earth don't have this luxury. This opportunity to reflect on kind of the blessings that we've received. So for me, had I failed at Foursquare, having gotten paid what I did, right? I still will have changed my life over the two years that I worked for them because I enjoyed using the product. I loved how it did impact the way that I explored and kind of interacted with my world. And if it didn't work out, my life will have been better for those two years. And, you know, my worst case scenario wasn't that bad. I go back to how I was raised and I survived that, you know. So for me, perspective has always been like a, um, an important thing that I've brought with me. And you know, I encourage you guys to recognize that when you put it in the perspective of being better off than the 99% of folks kind of in the world. And I give folks this advice all the time. Something clicks in their head, like, oh, like you're right. And you start to appreciate what you currently have. So let's continue on that, that journey that you went on. So after Foursquare, you had a chance to go be an entrepreneur in residence at Andreessen Horowitz. Mm-hmm. What exactly is an entrepreneur yeah. in residence, an EIR? Because yeah, a lot of people hear that, that term. <laughs> What's it mean? Yeah, it's a weird, weird wonderful job. It's you get to be paid for thinking of ideas all day, which feels kind of crazy and silly, but they were willing to pay me for it. So I I did it. The bet um, was, hey, come spend six to nine months with us, venture capital firm. Help us kind of source deals, right, that we can actually kind of invest in, that sort of thing. And if you start your company, like, we can be one of the investors in it to the extent that it makes sense for the firm. That's what a typical entrepreneur in residence kind of job is, right? For me, I didn't want to do any of the sourcing stuff. So literally, it was me kind of coming in the office, like thinking of ideas. I spent all nine months there. And then seven months into it, they like funded it. And then I continued, which kind of I'll talk about in a bit. But from an entrepreneur in residence perspective, it sounds like a really kind of like appealing and great job. But I've never met one person who's enjoyed it. Primarily because really the goal is you get a fixed amount of time to think of the idea that you believe will change the world. And sometimes people need more than six to nine months, right? This stuff needs to happen organically. It can't be forced. Also, if you're asked to source deals on their behalf, it's distracting, right? You need time to focus on these things. So for me, that was my job, just thinking of ideas. And thank goodness that like, I actually came up with one that I was pretty passionate about. But that doesn't always happen. And had you met Andreessen through your role at business development at Foursquare yeah, yeah. with the investors in the Yeah, firm? so Ben Horowitz of Andreessen Horowitz was on the board of Foursquare. Mark Andreessen uh, was one of the investors in Twitter. Given the work that I did at Foursquare, you know, I had a few EIR offers. 
Um, and then Ben, a day after I left Foursquare, he called me into his home and said, just come do it with us. Yeah. So we've spent a lot of time talking about the origin. Mm -hmm. Let's get to the story that probably the audience is here mm -hmm. to actually hear about. So that led you to Walker & Company, uh, where you've been the CEO and the founder for the last you know, six years, mm -hmm. roughly. Mm -hmm. Talk about the origin story. Uh, yeah. You said you had six to nine months come up with an idea, and you came up with a pretty damn good one. Yeah. So uh, what was that inspiration, and I think what cycles did you go through? So you go back to the EIR thing, you had six to nine months. It's Twitter, Foursquare. You know, I had this thing like, how can I build something that's just ambitious? And for the first seven months, I was trying to think about the most ambitious thing that I could build, but it wasn't for me. It was just think ambition, right? Uh, and kind of give back to these folks what they're giving to me, an opportunity. So for a few months when I started, I had this, what I believe to be an amazing idea on like routing freight and trucking in this country a little bit more efficiently, which, you know, is a pretty grandiose thing. And I was like, ah, you know, boring. And then I said, there's this idea in like, childhood obesity and play that like I'm excited about. Kids don't play as much as they used to. Um, you have new technologies that can inspire them to get out and play. Did that for about three to four months. And then um, Ben Horowitz told me something that stuck with me for a while. He said, Tristan, what will make you successful is if you focus on the thing that you fundamentally feel that you're the best person in the world to solve, like the problem that you're trying to solve. When I thought about freight and trucking, I had no experience in freight and trucking, right? Childhood obesity, right? Like, I had no unique perspective on that or expertise. So I challenged myself to think, all right, based on my experience, because I know myself and my story and um, kind of my background better than anybody, what are the things out of that story that actually will make me uniquely qualified to believe that I'm actually the best person in the world to solve said problem, right? So that's kind of one kind of um, precept, right, that I was told. The other one that Ben Harts would always tell me, he would say, Tristan, usually what looks like bad ideas are good ideas, and usually what looks like good ideas are bad ideas. The quintessential example of this is Airbnb. Airbnb is a terribly bad idea when you think about it, right? Like folks getting renting out their rooms to strangers, right, and like actually making money for that. Like on the surface, it's a terribly bad idea but they've kind of generated tens of billions of dollars in value on that bad idea. For the things that are perceived to be good ideas, everybody else wants to do it, so there's no value creation to happen, right? So you lose all the... So those two precepts I put together, and I started to think about um, what I wanted to do. A couple signals. First, when I would go down Sand Hill Road where all the venture capital firms are, I told them about freight and trucking, everybody would say, oh, that's a good idea, right? And it wasn't until I started to tell them about Walker & Company, which I'll tell you about in a second, that I started to hear for the first time, oh, that's a terrible idea. And there was like a, um, we laugh a little bit, but like it's a, it's a very important thing because the more and more you hear that something is a bad idea, you start to kind of lose the self-esteem behind it. But like that's where the genius happens. Because if it's so bad, no one else is going to do it. And especially if you're uniquely qualified to do that bad idea, Nobody has any perspective or context on its ability to be successful. So that brings me to kind of Walker and Company. In January of 2013, I got frustrated. I know you can't see it now, but I, I hated the way that I could shave. Every single way that I encountered facial hair removal was terrible. And this is from the time I went to boarding school and high school. I didn't have a father to teach me how to shave the right way. Uh, the products that were out in the market didn't work for me. 
you know, black men, roughly 80% black men and women suffer from kind of shaving irritation, razor bumps in grown hairs, that sort of thing, which are caused by the kind of tools that are mass marketed to us, things like multi-blade razors. But also it's a result of our having curly hair that causes those things. So that's one tool that just never worked for me. Then, um, you know, you use electric trimmers. You go to a barbershop. The barber's using the same electric trimmers and everyone else's hair on your face, which is disgusting for like a multitude of reasons. And then for 15 years, from the time I was 14 years old until January of 2013, I used this thing called the depilatory cream on my face. So for folks who are not familiar with it, it's similar to like their product Nair. And for folks who really don't even know what that is, it's like this cream that you put on your face or wherever you want to shave. You let it sit for six to nine minutes and then you like wipe it off and it like the hair goes away. It's crazy. Like, first of all, that's not supposed to happen, right? It's like weird. And then you read on the back of like these bottles, the caution statement. It says, don't use two days in a row. <laughs> and it's like, wow, like that's a, anyway, there's a whole bunch of, it stinks up your bathroom. It burns your face, discolors your skin, but there's nothing else you can use. So they figured out like this kind of niche opportunity for themselves. So in January, I got frustrated by it, and um, you know, I walked into an, uh, a store called The Art of Shaving, which, for folks who don't know, is owned by Procter & Gamble, uh, which also owns Gillette. And, like, was, I didn't really think or know about that at the time. I just walked in. I asked sales rep, hey, what should I use? Right? I've had to deal with this issue my entire life. Nobody's taught me how to shave. What should I use? Now, the sales rep has every incentive in the world to sell me like a $200 razor with a nice handle that has multi-blades on it, that sort of thing, right? Never did it. And every kind of art of shaving that um, I had gone to up in that point and a few weeks after, never did it. They've always taken me and recommended, or taken me to and recommended my using what's called a double-edged, single-blade safety razor. These are things that, you know, grandfathers and great-grandfathers have used. This is how the industry started back in the early 1900s. It's a single blade, so not multi-blades. So it was interesting. I used it, woke up the following morning, and I didn't, my skin didn't break up. It was like a momentous thing to think. Like for 15 years, I've had to think, do, like, deal with this issue and to use this tool that's been around for 100 years that actually works. And that set me on this path to figure out, all right, why is it working you know, fast forward through it, you know, a single blade cuts the hair level with the skin. A lot of multi-blade razors cut beneath the skin. If I have curly hair and it cuts the beneath the skin, it's going to grow into your skin, right? Simple enough, right? And it's one clean cut, so there's no pulling or tugging like a lot of multi-blade razors do today. But because it was founded over 100 years ago and that started the industry, there's no patent on it anymore. So the incentives of, like, a lot of these kind of larger companies to keep promoting it right, um, has diminished. So now here's a wide open opportunity for somebody to come in and tell a unique story for unpatented product with a suite of products to help solve this very acute problem. So let me kind of full circle a little bit. Who would be a better person in the world, right, who has identified the solution to this problem, can raise money to do it, reflects the diversity of the consumer set that he seeks and leverage all that he's learned in kind of like technology and stuff to build the next generation CPG company from the ground up. I had a hard time thinking about who that would be. So people told me it was a bad idea. And it wasn't a bad idea. 
it was because the folks on the other side of the table didn't look like me and didn't have that problem. So, you know, the purpose of this talk, it's not just bringing the hustle, but it's also on building an authentic brand. Mm -hmm. And you just told the story of how you kind of came up with that inspiration and you were able to find a lot of people that joined you in that journey. Uh, one of them happened to be Nas. Mm -hmm. So pretty cool. Yeah. Get a, a pretty. Not a bad look. Yeah. A, a guy. <laughs> I know you listened to his music yep. as you were growing up. And you had a moment at one point that not only was he an investor in your company, but he ended up coming out with a song where he said, you know, my signature fade with my bevel blade, mm -hmm. which is a pretty amazing feeling to have yep. that, it was awesome. that type of thing happen. You have like that and you have that amazing celebrity that comes in but you're also trying to balance your authentic brand. Mm -hmm. You know, Bevel is your brand, not Nas. Mm -hmm. How do you balance those two? And how do you think about bringing celebrities and others involved without losing what made your authentic yeah, business? Yeah, so I'd say a couple of things. It's, it's not my brand, it's like the brand of the people who we serve. You know, one of the lessons that I got from a marketing professor that stuck with me for a while is brand is not what you say it is, it's what they say it is, right? And the thing that I've been most proud of is how consistent our consumers talk about what Bevel, our kind of shaving brand, represents for them, and it matches how we articulate it, right? So it has nothing to do with what we say it is, it's how like the values actually kind of come out in every single touch point we have with our consumers, and they can voice it back to us. The Nas thing was interesting, because he, for a multitude of reasons, like I grew up Queens, he's from Queens, he's like the haircut guy, like he's sponsoring our trimmer, there's all types of kind of wonder in that. But the thing I also have to let people know is there's no special health and beauty product store for like hip hop artists, <laughs> you know? Like Nas or anybody else has the same problem I do, right? Other black celebrities have the same problem that I do, right? The problem we're solving with Bevel is a problem 80% of black men and women have, but 30% of everyone else, it's a problem that's universal, right? So when he speaks about it, he speaks authentically about it. And then, you know, I, uh, I give my team this kind of analogy. Like, the, you remember Brady Bunch, and they have that Brady Bunch grid where there's, like, nine of, like, the people in the family. And it's like, oh, they're Brady Bunch, right? Like, imagine, like, Nas or any celebrity was in one of them, and then we had just kind of consumers in the rest of them. If you didn't notice Nas right away, then I think we will have done something pretty special. Where he's just a consumer, much like... I am, much like you might be, much like folks in the audience might be. So I think we've been able to curate an authentic experience because folks authentically want their problems solved. And we're speaking a language that's our own. You know, I have a team that is majority minority, majority woman, majority woman of color in leadership at my company. So when we make things, when we speak about things, they come from a place of true authenticity because we don't know how else to talk. That makes sense? It does. Yeah. So I want to continue on that path of authenticity. You talked about when you came up with Bevel, it was an unpatented or unable to patent product because mm -hmm. it's been around for mm -hmm. 100 years. And we've seen the rise over the last, call it five years, of all of these direct-to-consumer brands, digitally native vertical brands, most of which are sourcing from contract manufacturers yep. that you and I can go launch the exact same product, slap a fancy brand on it, and mm -hmm. go sell it. Mm -hmm. Well, you started with an unpatented product. R&D and science and claim, that's important to what you're building because you don't want to just sell another crappy product that's right. like a lot of people. So how have you thought about that? And what's your perspective on 
the direct consumer industry as a whole that is okay just selling the same product with a different brand on yeah, it. Yeah, look, I think, um, so I'll kind of start in reverse. Direct to consumer will be increasingly important for a lot of the obvious reasons, but there's one less obvious reason is that like folks want what they want. And I think we're going to start to have this reversion back where you're going to have these like smaller brands that are okay with being smaller. Back in 2008, everybody just wanted to be the biggest eyeglass company, wanted to be the biggest pants company, wanted to be the biggest shaving company. But they're, and I'd like this and I, I love it that there are founders who are like, you know what? I have my audience. It's doing $5 million a year in revenue. My audience isn't going anywhere else. I'm going to build the best kind of possible experience I can build for them. So in those kind of opportunities, the R&D stuff becomes less needed, right? Because you have such a, an important tie to the people, right? Again, brand's not what you say it is. It's what they say it is. And as long as you're serving them in the way they want to be served, great. And that doesn't always require, like, a clinical claim, right? Sometimes people want to feel respected and heard. That's it, right? Like, you know, the thing about Bevel, there was nothing special R&D-wise. Like, the products worked. But that's kind of, like, level setting. Like, if the products don't work, nobody's going to use our products at all, right? It's, it's table stakes, right? But they felt respected. Like, you don't have to walk down an ethnic beauty aisle by yourself when it's right next to the beauty aisle where everybody else is walking down, right? You don't have to worry about kind of old packaging that's dirty anymore, like, you know, while everybody else gets kind of wonderful packaging. You don't have to worry about the caution statement on the back of, like, the packaging, right, when nobody else does. And we can speak a language that we know how to speak that's relevant to the audience. That's being respected and heard. Now, my ambition was to build something Procter & Gamble-like that's still around 150 years from now, and that's where a lot of the R&D stuff and the prowess needs to come in. And there's like this interesting crossroads that happened where it's like, if that's my vision and my goal, do I do it myself? Or do I do it with someone who already has that, who can accelerate what that means, right? And that's why we kind of decided to partner with Procter & Gamble because they've been doing this for 150 years better than anybody else. And that stuff requires a hell of a lot of money. So what I've learned is it just depends. You don't have to build a billion dollar company. And in a lot of ways, like, that's miserable, right? You don't have to build a $5 million company. And also, in a lot of ways, that could be miserable too, right? This is just entrepreneurship, but it's important to like, determine what you want. And one path requires a hell of a lot more ambition on things like the R&D stuff, where the other does not. So rewinding to uh, the origin story, back August 2012, you went on Quora, and you asked the question, what's it going to take to build the next product? Oh, I Gamble? forgot about that. Yeah. That's true. You did. I'm so, so old. So you went on there, you asked that question, and you just hinted at it, but not to bury the lead. Yeah. Walker and Company is now owned by Procter & Gamble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So while you asked that question to those of us at P&G back <laughs> in the day, uh, how would you answer that question today if you were looking back at that? What would it take to build the next Procter & Gamble? Yeah. Uh, it's going to be a hard one because we're the ones trying to do it. I think it was a tall, it's a tall order. Procter & Gamble, there's so many reasons why Procter & Gamble has been around for 180 years. And there's many more reasons why other companies have not. You know, like, try to think, like, who, what other companies have been around that long? I, I can't really count on one hand, like, the number of companies that have been around that long that still remain relevant. 
these guys serve 5 billion people around the world, right? That's a lot of people. They touch their lives every day. So what would it take? It would take a lot of patience, a lot of patience, which we have. It would take a lot of money, right? <laughs> you know, one thing I learned in like starting the company, and I really do believe this to be true, there are only two reasons companies fail, right? One is people give up, and two, you run out of money. There's no other reason why any company in the history of the world has ever really failed, right? Like, yeah, there's like in between how you determine like giving up or at what point does running out of money mean running out of money. But at some point, one of those two things happen or both, and then like it fails. Parker Gamble hasn't done either of those things, <laughs> you know? And I really don't want to underestimate the money thing, right? It's a real tall order for me to say, all right, I need to be around 150 years from now competing with a company that spends $2 billion in research a year. That's just on research, you know, not to mention like marketing and all the other stuff. So if I had an incredible amount of patience and an incredible amount of money, then it's possible. Otherwise, I think I would have been personally happy doing the kind of niche 5 million, 10 million, this is my audience kind of thing. But if you want to go after Procter & Gamble, you need an immense amount of fortitude and capital. So let's talk about the, the acquisition. You know, we've had a lot of peers have their companies acquired, and the founders ride off into the sunset, and it becomes somebody else's business. Mm-hmm. Eight months ago when you announced the deal, you very clearly said, I have grandiose ambitions that you've hinted at here to build that next generation company. What drove you to say, I'm not just going to check this box and go off, but I'm going to double down and let this be my legacy? Yeah, I, I have not finished the work. I mean, we just got started. I was, um, you know, we sold December 12th, 2018. At that time, we were probably five and a half years old. Again, Procter & Gamble is 180 years old, right? Like, we've, we've got some work to do. Um, my name's on the company. Um, you know, my sons, like, I want them to live in a world where their needs are respected in this industry. Like, there's a legacy that's important there. But even more important... They serve 5 billion people around the world. So a couple things with this acquisition, which I think are unique. And this goes back to you know, how do you build the, the next Procter Gamble? Like, I'm the first, first black CEO in the company's history. It's 180 years, and that has not happened yet. That's like a meaningful thing and a meaningful part of the legacy. Why is that meaningful? Because the majority of those 5 billion people served are people of color. Those people of color have needs that are similar to mine and needs similar to the, like, or problems that we want to solve, right? PhD recognizes those things with the infrastructure to support the solving of those things. And I, I say this personally, PG might not believe it yet, but I believe it to be true. In 20, 30 years, certainly in this country, but for the world, for sure, is Procter & Gamble of today the Procter & Gamble then? Or will it be then? Or is it more like Walker Company? And I mean that in terms of like the folks we serve, how they're spoken to, et cetera. I have an opinion on that, <laughs> right? And we'll see. But I think that there's a directionality to this that I could impact and the ability to impact potentially 5 billion people around the world with a lot of the same values and tenets and precepts that like we care a lot about, especially when those are matched with the Procter & Gamble, it's pretty sizable. You know, the CEO, like I've spoken to him a number of times, and, you know, he says, Tristan, when you realize, he, I'll be surprised if you're, like, the CEO of Walker & Company in, like, 10, 15 years. Because he's like, when you realize the amount of impact 
that my role has within P&G, right? Yeah, there's like the brand and the manufacturing stuff, but then there's like the stuff you do in DC, right? There's the stuff you do around the globe and supporting various initiatives. Like that's impact and that's global impact in a type of change type of environment that I want to be a part of. So for as long as my opinions on what that can mean are respected, as long as P&G continues to fulfill its side of the bargain, which it has been so far, there's still work to be done. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So let's talk about that impact. Uh, One of the bullet points that was buried, I think, in the acquisition, but really jumped out to me was the fact that in part of that move, you're also moving the company to Atlanta, leaving Silicon Valley, going to Atlanta. And you've talked that, well, it made sense because that was your largest market already, consumers, et cetera. Was that move to Atlanta something you already had in the works or was this the catalyst for that yeah. bigger vision. So great question. I um, so 2018 was a pretty crazy year for us, and I mean like tough, right? Because it was in a time when uh, venture capitalists weren't investing in this category anymore. Our business was growing, right? Uh, but again, like we weren't going to give up. But there's a world where we could have run out of cash, right? Which is crazy, like in a successful growth environment, to not have folks still believe that that bad idea turned into a good one, right? Um, so we were at the whims of like the capital that existed. So, you know, we had this kind of moment where it's like, wow, like we're either going to have to partner with somebody or really hunker down and like, you know, do this even more slowly. So if we were going to do the latter, I sort of think, all right, where are we going to do it? How are we going to do it? That sort of thing. In August of last year, my wife and I visited Atlanta, Georgia uh, with our first son at the time. And, uh, you know, we are like, okay, this is a really interesting place. Um, we got there on a Friday. It was my second time ever in Atlanta. On Saturday, we were like, let's just look at some homes because we were in an environment. There's some open houses. We were like, just for fun. We saw a home that we liked. On Sunday, we put in a bid for it. And this is literally how we did not go there to do this. We put in a bid for it. On Monday, we got it or got, they hit the bid. And then I went back to work in Palo Alto, California on Tuesday. And I was like, damn, now I have like a house that like I'm going to buy and I haven't figured out what I'm going to do with this company yet. So this is kind of true faith, true story, but true blessing notwithstanding. Two weeks later, Procter & Gamble came to the office. And one of the first questions they were like, we're like all right, we, want, we believe that we can partner together. We're just going to make this happen some way, but let's have a conversation around what this future can look like. Where do you want to be? It's like Atlanta, right? And they're like, great idea. And it was literally a true story. It was justified by the fact that most of our customers were there. That's where, um, you know, we think about the cultural impact of Bevel and the cultural impact of the community that we're serving. Really, Atlanta's a hub for that. Cost of living, there's all types. Like, I think in Atlanta, and I think P&G believes this too, 
there's um, a life arbitrage, right? Like, uh, you know, we think about cost of living, cultural impact. It's the second growest, second fastest growing city in the country. You know, technology, every industry, right? It just made a hell of a lot of sense. So we had that conversation with P&G. Uh, September, negotiated the deal. We, closed, we ended the deal in November, so two months later. We announced it December 12th, and I let my team know that we're going to move December 13th. So within the three to four month period, Atlanta kind of happened. And fortunately, a number of folks on my team agreed. And it's been one of the best decisions that I not only made for the company, but also personally, because now, you know, um, my son gets to live in an environment that's a hell of a lot more diverse than the one that he was raised in in Palo Alto, California. You know, my wife, uh, she's an educator, um, and you know, she gets to educate and teach you know, a group of students that, again, reflects the diversity of the world right now, which is wonderful. Uh, we get to kind of touch our consumers. My son gets to see this stuff right now, like what diversity really means, not only for him. So professionally and personally, it made a hell of a lot of sense. And it was a decision that, in hindsight, probably could have been made sooner. So you've talked a lot about, you know, just not in this conversation, but in the past, that geography does matter. Mm -hmm. And those opportunities that were created for you, moving as far away from Yukota's Wall Street, going to Silicon Valley in Mm -hmm. 2008, that led you on this path. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't have met Ben Horowitz Mm -hmm. if it hadn't been for that. None of this. But if you were looking back today and giving young Tristan the advice of 2019, where should you start Walker & Company? Would it be Silicon Valley or would it be an emerging market like in Atlanta, Cincinnati, something else? I mean, I would would tell him, do whatever you want. (laughs) Like, I, I think we are blessed today with that opportunity. 2008, like, you kind of felt you had to go to Silicon Valley to be a part of it. Tech is pervasive everywhere now. Or tech is like table stakes, much in the same way as like if you wanted to start a company, the product has to work, right? It's almost like tech is a part of it. And we still speak about like tech is a separate thing. No, like it's just a part of building something now. And people can build those things anywhere, right? Like, and I tell folks, I, first of all, entrepreneurship is hard. You know, this, being the CEO of a startup is the worst job I've ever had, but the most rewarding. I can't see myself doing anything else. I can't underestimate, or I can't overestimate, I guess, how hard it is, right? Why make it harder for yourself to build this in a place you don't want to be, right? With people who don't want to be there, with the cost of living that's higher than it needs to be, right? We live in a world now where you can be where you want to be, right? And it's important, if you are to pursue this path, right, of kind of starting a company, founding a company, you, you need to make those decisions. Like, there are, this job is about making high-quality decisions at a high velocity, which is actually, like, really, really hard to do. But the best first decision you can make is, like, taking ownership around where you want to be and why you want to be there. So it's no problem if you want to go to Silicon Valley, but have a good reason for it. But you have to own that decision if you're unhappy with it. Right. So the lesson that I try to tell people is be where you want to be, but know what your own personal values are and why you're making that decision in line with the values that you have. So last eight months, really last 12, since you started talking P&G, 
you've been spending a lot more time here in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot easier flight from Atlanta up here. Can't to complain. What do you think this market needs to do to continue the growth and realize that kind of opportunity? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, this wonderful thing that's happening where you have like these burgeoning cities, right? It's like Austin and Atlanta and even Cincinnati. The last time I was here, apparently like Amazon's opening up some like big kind of like manufacturing slash travel slash everything hub here. It's only $2 billion hub. It's yeah, it's small. like, but I mean, that's huge. The fact that Amazon made that decision, like these are the the catalyzing things that change everything, right? So the, the best way that I can answer that question is to let what's happening happen, right? And this kind of goes back to the answer of the previous question. Some folks just want to be in Cincinnati, right? There's family, there's history, like there's legacy. If you want to do it, know that there is or will be an infrastructure to support that. That's the patience thing, right? Like have the patience and it'll kind of work out in your favor. But for me, for Atlanta, it was for all the same reasons. Like the infrastructure is getting built. The cultural kind of like hub was there. The cost of living was there. And Cincinnati has a lot of those same things, right? Um, it has the corporations here, much like Atlanta and the Austins and that sort of thing. So it has like the formula, right, um, to be like one of those hubs. And the rest of it is just waiting it out a little bit. So I've got uh, two final questions before we kind of move to the audience. Mm -hmm. So the one is, you know, we're just starting to see the exit of modern brands mm -hmm. as P&G gets equipped with Coke, others. Mm -hmm. And you chose a funny category of shaving that has seen Dollar Shave Club exit, Harry's exit, mm -hmm. and Walker and Company. Mm -hmm. There's other categories still waiting for the first exit mm -hmm. of these brands. Mm -hmm. Why do you think shaving was the first one that not just one fell, but all three dominoes kind of fell? So I think about Walker Company a little bit differently because we also have like a hair care brand. And funny enough, the, the big sponsor for our acquisition was not grooming, it was beauty. Because they saw that there was this kind of multicultural imperative in all of beauty, which frankly is a much bigger category. Yeah. And you um, mentioned the brand name of your, uh, your women's brand. So. Oh yeah, it's called Form Beauty, formbeauty.com. Great hair care products, you should check it out. So... Beauty is a huge category. For the, for the other folks that you mentioned, the other startups that got acquired and they had really, really great exits, it felt to me it was more about the functionality, right? Um, as opposed to displacement of brand, right? So like Dollar Shave Club, they knew how to grow quickly. And also Unilever at the time did not have a shave brand, so it complemented them. You know, Harry's was bought by Edgewell. But from my understanding at the time, uh, it was a declining business for them, so they needed to kind of stick that business in that was growing. For us, it was uniquely different. Like, we have capabilities and infrastructure, and this is like the future of the world, <laughs> right? So why was shaving an interesting category? I think it was very much company-specific. Uh, for P&G and us, I think it was consumer-specific. And in my opinion, I think the consumer is the bigger bet. So you know, one of the things I've always had a ton of respect for your own way you live your life is you are a constant learner. You know, I walk in today to breakfast, you've got a book sitting there that's not one that a lot of people are going to be saying they're reading at <laughs> 7.30 in the morning. Yeah. So you really believe in this, what I call continuous beta, mm -hmm. the being constantly changing for yourself and for your company. Yeah. What's driven that as a mindset for you? And what do you think this audience can take away of 
how they can be constantly evolving and changing to thrive the next yeah. 10, 20, 30 years? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a great question. I, uh, I'm not a know-it-all, but I want to be. You know, like it's, um, I mean that genuinely. Like I want to know everything. And I want to kind of have a capacity for knowledge that is continually expansive. I think it's possible, you know. When I think about kind of my Hotchkiss experience, Stanford experience, and particularly given my kind of upbringing, you know, I was top of class in my schools, valedictorian, I've done all that stuff. But my, um, my capturing and kind of like memorization of the knowledge that I got didn't stick because I would just do it for the test, do it for the A+, plus, like that sort of thing. Because I wanted to get wealthy, <laughs> right? Now I'm in a position where I've been blessed with a wonderful family, you know, great home, having sold a business. I have time to get to know it all. When I started the company, three weeks before I raised my first round of funding, I wrote down my own personal values. I was 30 years old at the time. And I literally wrote them down. There was a Starbucks on the street in Palo Alto called El Camino Real. I sat down. I'll never forget this. Wrote them down. Came up with six. Uh, courage, inspiration, respect, judgment, wellness, loyalty. Really defined all from my upbringing up until that point. I wrote them down. I defined them for myself. And those became not only my own personal values, but also my company's values. Right. So you go to a website. It is what it is. It's defined. When we interview people, we interview them uh, with leading questions to get at their courage, inspiration, respect, whatever. When we do semi-annual, annual reviews, you're ready to get your goal attainment, but also your adherence to the values. The reason I take that so seriously is because we live in a noisy world. It provides me a framework to make decisions. Again, being a CEO, a founder is hard enough. I don't want to make this harder for myself. If I kind of have to make a tough decision or think about something, the first question I ask myself is, what do my values tell me to do? And more often than not, like, I have the answer. And too few people do that, which means that too few people know who they are. So this kind of answers the question more directly. Now I know who I am. I can kind of distill those values to my two sons. I can help educate them on what they mean. As I read the things that I do it, out of interest and excitement, I can kind of have more precision around my definition of what those values mean. Just because I wrote them and defined them six years ago doesn't mean the definition of those things were as precise as they can be. So, you know, I try and acquire the knowledge required to add extra precision to those values that I have to expand my knowledge set to further define those things and pass them down to my sons to continue that legacy. And if I'm doing that personally, I'm probably doing it for the company, right? And it tells a consistent, authentic, coherent message. And no one will ever be able to question my changeability, right? Because it's, there is none. Like, it's constant. And I want people to know that there's a consistency to how I live my life, how I make decisions, and become a better human. Uh, but I believe that like, the capacity to actually get to know it all is possible. And if I, don't know, if I don't do it in my lifetime, at least I will have tried so what's so powerful about that comment is when we were at breakfast, you said you felt like you joined the right company mm -hmm. because of that. One of the things you'll discover at P&G is there's a thing called personal leadership philosophy. Mm -hmm. And when you go down to Bentonville, Arkansas to be at that office, you'll see oh, yeah. one of their leaders that's on the wall. <laughs> oh, yeah. that, that's something you do. Oh, yeah. uh, so you joined the right place and we're excited to have you. So. 
thank you for taking the time. Thank I want to give the chance for the audience to uh, ask some questions. So we've got some microphones and we got some people raising hands. So let's get them to them fast. First of all, thank you so much for visiting and inspiring our students here. Speaking of our students, if you were to give some advice to uh, business students who maybe weren't getting their degree at Stanford, maybe it was a, a school that was really fantastic, a regional university like NKU, but they're competing for jobs at P&G and other companies with graduates from schools that maybe have you know more longer traditions and more prestige. How, how do our students, how can they, what advice do you have where they can be right there and competing with the grads from the Stanford's, Northwestern's, sure. et What's cetera? Your name? I'm Aaron, I'm Aaron? Pro professor of cool. marketing. It's a great question. I, uh, <laughs> it's funny, like I, as blessed as I am to have gone to Stanford, um, and kind of get to wear their logos on my jackets and stuff like that, Dennis Crowley, did not know or care that I went to Stanford. Evan Williams at Twitter didn't know or have to know. I think the thing that got me in those opportunities is that I always had a point of view. And the thing that I would encourage everybody here is like always have a point of view. That's something I learned kind of from the Wall Street days. Like if you were trading and didn't have a point of view, you could lose millions of dollars. <laughs> like, so I always, if anybody asks me, like, what's my opinion on something, I try to have, like, a pretty defined point of view. And when I look at a lot of my classmates, and frankly, there are a lot of those Stanford kids who didn't get those jobs relative to other kind of schools that had hungry folks that had points of view to get those jobs. And the reason is because they didn't have a point of view, right? They felt that the credential was all that they needed. Now, that's not to say that it didn't help, right? I would be the, the last person to be like, that thing does not help for in ways that implicitly just are unfortunate, right? But I think the thing that really usurps it is when you have a point of view. And that's when we start to get into like this bad idea conversation, right? Like you need to go to the Procter & Gamble's with a terrible idea, right? And the thing that you realize is that there are some like really smart, brilliant people there that will like take that bad idea and vibe with you to turn it into what can be perceived to be a good one. But you can't get there without a point of view. So when you like walk into those interviews, right? Like, don't wait for the question. Like, suggest the point of view first, and then have them ask the question. Does that make sense? I know it sounds a little bit abstract, but like, once you have the point of view, you have confidence. Once you have confidence, you have capability, right? And I think that's the one thing that set set me apart from the classmates that I've had. But I didn't always go to Stanford, and I still got those opportunities too. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, hi, Tristan. My name is Brandon. Uh, during your conversation with Dave, you had mentioned that entrepreneurship is really hard. I was curious to know, do your five and a half years growing uh, Walker and Company, what were the growing pains that you encountered? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Brandon. I, uh, so let's talk about last year. <laughs> I moved to Atlanta in April of this year. In March... I spoke to my therapist for the last session, and she reminded me of something. She said, Tristan, we started working together in June of 2018. At the time, you weren't moving to Atlanta. You weren't thinking about selling the company. You weren't having a second child yet, which I was having. 
in June or right at the end of May, or no, in the middle of June, I had a layoff. I laid off like half my team. All of these things happened very short period of time. Remember, I started talking to P&G in like September, <laughs> June, July, August, right? Like an incredibly stressful time. I'm a sole founder. Oh, and I couldn't raise money, you know? Yeah, look at his face. His face is like, oh God. <laughs> That's exactly, that was my face. So here, here's how I look about the world. It's just important, not only point of view, but perspective. Yes, this is the most terrible job on the planet. But when I say it's like the most rewarding, I look at this job as being or having the opportunity to do the things that 99% of the world doesn't get to do. I got to do a layoff successfully. So when folks like wonder how to do it, I actually have perspective now. Like when you terminate folks, right? I've done it. So like I can actually speak about it with authenticity, right? When I talk about selling a company, all these people that gave me advice who've never started a company, like they're, no, I've done it, right? So it was important for me, and this is why like, you know, I was, we had that last session because it was like this perspective of all the stuff I went through and we did it, you know? And that made me a better person, human, like all that stuff, right? That was just in three months. <laughs> out of the six years. So you could imagine other things that I had to go through over the six years, but I got through it. I got through it. Jacob Holbrook, um, right here. Oh, hi. So you gave the narrative of the company from inception to raising capital to eventually selling. Could you give us the linkage, the bridge to the numbers and how your biases changed, how the valuation changed and, and talk about yeah how you bridge that gap from the narrative and, and how it changed based off the market. Sure, uh, Jake, what's your name? Jacob Holbrook. Jacob. I raised $39 million at my company. I wish I'd never raised a cent of it. Every problem that I had at the company was a result of the money raised for it. Now, much like the Stanford thing, a lot of people are like, oh, well, yeah, but you raised $39 million, right? Like, whatever, <laughs> right? But I did it. And I actually have like perspective on what that means. One thing people forget is like you raise that money, you got to return it, <laughs> right? And it's not only thirty-nine million dollars; you got to return ten x. That's like that's a lot of money. So let's let's walk through the numbers a little bit. That means I would have to do let's say just round numbers four hundred million dollars acquisition. Let's say I didn't sell for four hundred million dollars, by the way. That would mean that if I'm selling to Procter Gamble. They're going to buy things around, yeah, this is any CPG company, between like two to three times revenues, right? So that reason my revenues would have had to have been between like 100 to 150, 175 million dollars in the five years that I kind of started the company, right? That needs to be returned within fewer than 10 years. I have a 150 year vision for the company. That leads to some interesting board conversations, right? Like, I want this money within this accelerated time frame, but you got to build this type of business more slowly. Patience, right? So it led to incredible challenges, right? The reason we weren't able to raise the money because we had to meet a valuation hurdle rate that we weren't ready for yet, right? And at some point, it's like, you got to get out of this vicious cycle. It's just not worth it. Like, I didn't do this for them, <laughs> you know? I did this to serve, and like the Procter Gamble opportunity made that a possibility. But 
you don't, I think the lesson in this, and I tell people this all the time now, you don't need to raise money to build incredibly successful businesses. There are a hell of a lot of companies that have done it successfully. Oh, and by the way, if you're going to play that game, know that there are other people in your category that probably can raise a lot more than you do. You know, at that time, Dollar Shave Club had raised $200 million. Harriet had raised upwards of $400 million. We raised $39 million, but we had 40 product SKUs. They only had 5 to 10. You know, like, some, at some point, the math doesn't make sense. And I had to stop making it not make sense. So it led to some hard conversations last year. But we ended up okay. <laughs> yeah. So I think we can do one final question. So. Hi, my name's Karen, and I'm uh, the superintendent of a school district just down the road. And my question, of course, then has to do with preschool through 12th grade education. Mm-hmm. And so first of all, do you think it's important to sort of grow an entrepreneurial mindset in, in our students? And yeah. if you do, what types of experiences, knowledge should we be providing to them before they leave us yeah. after graduation? Um, uh, thank you for the question. I, uh, my wife and I have this conversation a lot, and it we can see it through the lens of our five-year-old now, which is interesting. He um, is blessed to go to some of the best schools, especially in Palo Alto, like super progressive schools. My wife had taught at a progressive girls' middle school in Palo Alto. So you know, for folks who are, might be unfamiliar, I'm pretty sure you might be familiar with this, when you think about kind of progressive, particularly early learning education, you have like what's called play-based education, right? So kids just go in and just play, right? But like, you know, they get their hands dirty, they do all types of stuff. And then you have the rote memorization stuff, right? Like how I kind of grew up in school. And, um, you know, it's interesting, when we were thinking about the type of school that we wanted to put him in, we had this interesting kind of debate. Like, no, like, you know, he needs to be, he needs discipline, like, he needs to know his ABCs by the time he's like three and a half, right? Like stuff like that. And she was like, no, like, you know, progressivism is like the right approach. It makes them kind of whole learners, critical thinking, that sort of thing. So we took a shot. You know, from the time he was two, we put him in kind of this play-based education. By the time he was three, four years old, he was like fluent in Spanish, incredible, like critical thinker. And this one thing happened. Um, we had to take him out of one um, of his first like progressive education school because at that time he was two and a half years old, dealing with implicit bias, which is a huge problem. Like we recognized some things, we we're like, we need to take him out. Took him out, put him into a local kind of um, school about a block or two away from our home, which was more like the the other type of school, like the rote memorization type thing. And I remember. I took him out the following day because his capacity for um, enjoyment and learning and that sort of thing, it completely went away. It completely destroyed and changed my perspective on learning, period, right? And we found him in another progressive school literally 48 hours later. Like, that's how it happened. But it was this really wonderful education for me about education, right? And what it takes and what we need to develop kind of whole thinkers and learners. I was a valedictorian of my college, and I can't recall any of the information that I had learned from that. So this question around why I'm trying to do what I do now is so I can actually become more whole, more critical thinking, and more progressive in my own self-education, right? So the thing that, um, I guess to answer your question more directly, particularly as we think about folks in undergrad, graduate, like, own your learning. 
right? You have your curriculum, and of course you need to do that, but there's a capacity for learning that's actually has more breadth than you can think of. And if you want to be the best in the world, like, you know, <laughs> now we have this like interesting conversation on what college is he going to go to, <laughs> right? Or, you know, what profession like should we steer him into? And our our agreement now is he should do whatever he wants as long as he feels like he has the capacity to be the best person in the world at it. And your definition around what that means, that's self-motivating, right? Like, I can be the best dancer in the world because I can do this move better than anybody. I can be the best dancer in the world because I'm technically just excellent. I can be the best dancer in the world because I do these kind of, um, or actor, because I do these plays better than anybody else. This is world class at it. And the only way to get there is not the traditional method of learning. It's the kind of self-motivation to build your capacity. That applies not only for learning, it certainly applies for entrepreneurship, because all this stuff requires an agility. Like, life requires agility. And the only way you can have that agility is if you've taught yourself how to be agile, <laughs> right? Does that answer the question? Cool. Well, I think that's a perfect sound by ten. Awesome. So, Tristan, thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.